welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Hello, hello, dear listener. On today's episode, we have sociologist and author of The Polyamorous Next Door, Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Join us for a conversation about a harm reduction and pleasure enhancement approach to navigating the risks of kink. Together, we talk about the need for explicit and evolving consent conversations, learning through community best practices, and when kinky sex goes wrong. Welcome, dear listener, to another episode of Modern Anarchy. Happy Wednesday to all the listeners who are waking up and start their day off with listening to this podcast. I'm so touched that I get to uh, inspire and bring new thoughts and ideas into your day and that you are tuning in. Before we talk about the contents of this episode, because boy, is it juicy. I mean, we all... (laughs) Every episode in this podcast always is packed with so much. Um, I wanted to share with y'all some exciting news. On September 14th, last week, the results from the MDMA-assisted therapy phase three trial with MAPS came out. It is so exciting to have this data and these results out. To quote the results section, it says... These data suggest that MDMA-assisted therapy reduced PTSD symptoms and functional impairment in a diverse population with moderate to severe PTSD and was generally well tolerated. Ah, how exciting! Becca, what do we say to that? (laughs) Yes, Becca, that's right. But y'all, that means that Next step is we send those results to the FDA for approval. Now, I was talking to my colleagues at my training site, and I guess, you know, we don't really know for sure how long that process will take, what sort of people will try and prevent that process and extend that out longer. So we're not exactly sure when MDMA-assisted psychotherapy will start, but the results are there. It was well-tolerated, and now it's going to the FDA. So it's going to be soon, which is just so incredibly exciting. And I thought that I would share that in this space for all of you to know and be excited about. And I'm really excited to be a part of a team that will be some of the first psychologists to use this medicine in therapy. So stay tuned, dear listener. You know I will be updating you as that process goes along. Now, today's episode is all about when, yeah, kinky sex goes wrong. Our guest is actually serves as an expert witness to cases when kinky sex goes into legal and court proceedings. So they definitely have a unique perspective on the potential risks to kink and edge play, right? 
And I think it's important to name as Dr. Eli talks about in the episode that this is their perspective when it goes wrong, right? The majority of kinky sex does not go to this space. It does not have these occurrences happening. However, because of her positionality, she sees a unique perspective on what is the worst case scenarios that can happen with kink. So I'm excited to share that with you, dear listener, but also be conscious of the ways that that might affect your own perspectives on it, right? We talk about with medical students, right? It's so prevalent in their work that they start to think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have one of these diseases. I'm next. It has to be. Look at how prevalent it is, right? So also, I really appreciate that Dr. Eli named that, yes, the majority of sex does not go to this space. However, dear listener, informed consent, let's talk about it, right? Let's get into what the real risks are to edge play. And, you know, I also want to talk about the importance of learning in community. The reality is that the kink community has been doing these things for years, right? And there is knowledge within the community that isn't as easily accessible for other people. And so, I want to invite you, dear listener, to try and connect if you are doing edge play and things like this with other people in the community that you can learn from, other mentors, take classes, get on Fet Life, and start looking in your community to find where you can learn more. And hopefully conversations like this and the work of this podcast can help to let go of some of the shame that people feel around this. And Dr. Eli and I talk about that, how it is that shame that is preventing people from getting access to quality education and quality research, mind you. There is very little research in terms of safety practices about kink, right? And so hopefully one day we can get into a paradigm where we can have more research on the best safety practices for edge play. But for now, it's all community knowledge. And so I want to invite you, if you can, to connect if you're exploring these things. And, you know, as someone working in the psychedelic space, it reminds me a lot about, you know, drug use, right? We have pathologized it for so long that the knowledge of how to do these things safely is often tucked within the community itself. And so it's not as easy to find that because of the deep shame that we've had around these things. And so taking, you know, that harm reduction approach, that's something that we'll be exploring in future conversations with some of our podcast guests that are coming up, is a longstanding approach to trying to decrease the risks, right? Going with that harm reduction approach to education. And I think the other side is also important, right? What is a pleasure enhancement? We are not just trying to reduce the harm of drugs. We are also trying to enjoy them. Pleasure enhancement. And so I think the paradigms of both of that are important, right? Similar thing with sex education, y'all. Think about that. All the years of Harm. Oh my God, here we are. Try to teach abstinence only, right? Let's also step into a pleasure-based education. And so I hope to hold that space for you, dear listener, here on the podcast with these guests. And yeah, when we're thinking about kink, it's just also important to remember that there is such a spectrum to kink, right? As with all things in life, you know, there are people where 
having a threesome feels kinky. That is super kinky for them, wild ideas, concepts. There are people on the opposite side of the spectrum where threesomes are their normal Tuesday. You know what I mean? (laughs) Maybe you do or you don't, listener. That's the whole point here. So something like a threesome would not be considered kinky, right? Maybe a slap on the ass is considered kinky for you. Maybe that's your norm, right? At the other end of that spectrum, maybe kidnapping play, right? That heightened adrenaline rush of that experience is for you, and maybe it's not. So I just want to also hold space for the wide variety of places where people are at in terms of exploring kink and what feels good to them. And so some of the things you hear in this episode might be the first time you're hearing that people engage in this type of play. And so I want to invite you to, you know, stick with your body. Notice what you feel in your body during these episodes and try to refrain from judgment. And hopefully we can open up some more curiosity about why people engage in various kinks because that endorphin rush can be quite a trip, can be quite a trip. And yeah, if someone is having any sort of judgment out there, that's okay. Hey, I had that too, right? Let's also name that. I think that's an important part of this journey is that, You know, if my experience coming from a Christian background has taught me anything is that I had no idea and my first reaction was judgment. And so if that's also where people are at, hey, we welcome you. Keep learning. You can continue to expand and open up your mind to why people like to enjoy playing on the edge, right? I mean, people can look at me and think I'm wild and judge me, I guess, for rock climbing. That's a pretty high-risk edge sport, and I guess many people do actually judge rock climbers, right? Like Alex Honnold, like, how is that man free soloing out here? It's, it's, you know? So wherever you're at in that spectrum, I invite you to keep opening up to hold space for the ways that people show up in the world and their choices in this existential reality where there is necessarily no right or wrong way, right? But people get to make their own meaning, make their own choices. And so hopefully you can continue to check those moments where we have some judgment. And I also just want to share, damn, in terms of, you know, risks and playing, I mean, There is recent research that came out from the American Heart Association, and it found that no amount of alcohol is safe for the heart. Oh my gosh, dear listener, I hope that every time that you go to take a sip of alcohol, you think about that. I hope you think actively about the risk that you are taking because the reality is all of our life's choices have various risks, consequences, benefits, and we're always playing in that. So yeah, that sip of alcohol, research shows it's not great for the heart. Mm. Remember when they used to tell us that smoking cigarettes was good for you? The doctors used to say that. I wonder if one day we'll look back on alcohol with a different perspective uh, as more and more research comes out about these things. So when I am biking in the city of Chicago, I am actively playing with risk, right? Someone could hit me at any moment and those are risks that I feel comfortable playing with. And so dear listener, 
all of you are going to have very different risk reward profiles that you feel comfortable with based on your own lived experience, the research that you've found, the communities that you exist in. And I just hope that, yeah, we refrain from judging other people's choices in those paradigms and how they want to play with risks. And I hope that we can come to a space where we get more education on these things as we let go of the shame that surrounds kink and edge play. And like Dr. Eli mentioned, you know, the research shows that up to 70% of people have BDSM fantasies. So, and like we both believe, that's probably a very underestimated statistic because most people are not as willing to offer that information. And so, gosh, 70%? I mean, come on. Can we just all accept at this point that we have kinky fantasies? Whether we choose to enact them out or not is always our choice, right? You get to choose that risk-reward profile that feels good for you. But let's just let go of the shame (laughs) and openly embrace that kink is a part of human sexuality. Joy listener, I am so thankful you are in this space. I am sending you a big hug on this rainy fall day in Chicago. All right, let's tune in to today's episode. Well, then the first question I like to ask each guest is how would you introduce yourself? I would say um, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Chef. Most people call me Dr. Eli. Actually, <laughs> most people call me Eli. I don't make people call me Dr. Anything. Sure, 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 sure. But if I'm in the world, you know, like trying to be a branded human, which is weird branding people, mm-hmm. um, but I have that brand. So I'm trying to be Dr. Eli. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sociologist, a researcher. I'm an expert witness. I'm a relationship coach, mm-hmm. helping people in who are trying to figure out consensual non-monogamy and BDSM. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm an expert witness in court cases for either people who are facing losing their children because they have unconventional relationships mm, or sex wow. lives that freak other people out. Wow. Or kinky sex gone wrong. I've testified in assault trials rape murder kidnapping wow that's the whole thing i mean i don't even know where to start with that do you have any stories that you think would be pertinent to share in the space regarding i know i'm I'm ready i'm ready (laughs) i would say you know one of the things is people do stupid things when they've Mm. been high and awake for Mm. days Mm. one of my cases i had somebody who it was this person and their sweetie Mm -hmm. had been high for i think they hadn't slept in four days wow which is not good for your brain and it's really bad for decision making sure that degree of sleep deprivation plus mood alteration means you do stupid things and so Mm -hmm. these two are driving around san francisco they've been talking about doing this kidnapping scene for days you know this whole time so they decide what better time to do a kidnapping scene than lunchtime in the financial district of san francisco Mm. so she like jumps from the moving car 
he pulls over literally onto the sidewalk, jumps out of the car, runs after her, grabs her, and pulls her by her hair back to the car. They're doing a scene. The people around them Don't have know that. no idea this is a scene. She's screaming. Oh, God. Of course, the bystanders, which I'm happy they did this, because if it wasn't a scene, obviously this is bad news. Yes. The bystanders pounce on him and grab him. And now he's screaming and fighting back. And they're like, call the police, call the police. So she freaks out because she's in the country illegally. Her no. tourist visa expired months ago. So, and if you get deported, you can't come back for at least 10 years, depending wow. on the country, you may never be able to come back. So avoiding getting deported is yeah. really important for some people. So she freaks out and runs away to Europe, like mm. leave the country. He's in jail saying, this was consensual. This was a scene. We were playing. This was, you know, like yeah. we were acting. I know her. I wasn't actually kidnapping her. She finally calls from Europe days later to say, this was a scene. He wasn't kidnapping me. I got all freaked out and ran away. So he ultimately, he was only prosecuted for, I think, reckless driving, public endangerment and resisting arrest or mm. something, but not like kidnapping, kidnapping is a felony. You can't just be kidnapping people and be like, whoops, sorry. Sure. So they didn't prosecute him for that, which was really lucky yeah. for him. But as a cautionary tale, so many of my expert witnessing gigs involve people having kinky sex mm. when they're high mm. and especially high and sleep deprived. When mm. you've been on a bender for days mm -hmm. that is the wrong time yeah. to do a kidnapping scene you've got to be i mean kidnapping scenes in general you right. need to be really careful if there are bystanders you need to figure out how you're going to manage that mm -hmm. you need to you know like have very clear usually it's a consensual non-consent kind of thing which your listeners might be aware of as an aspect of BDSM when people generally playing with BDSM, people will have a safe word they can say to stop the scene. Mm -hmm. In consensual non-consent, people agree before the scene what will and won't happen, but during the scene, there's often no stopping. And people aren't necessarily sure when the scene will happen. Mm -hmm. you know in consensual non-consent it's negotiated lots of different ways but basically it's a pretty advanced form of bdsm that people should be careful with because you can accidentally hurt your partner and really not meaning to yeah you can kill your partner without meaning to mm -hmm. i have seen that happen more than once mm -hmm. with breath play and it's really dangerous and people do it when they're high and they don't stop fast enough. So listeners out there in relationship anarchy land, be very careful with your BDSM. Have fun with it. Make sure it's consensual and play sober 
if you're going to do extreme things, do them sober. It could make a difference between life in prison mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is uh, your location in terms of the episodes that I'm recording is, I think, very uh, divinely constructed here because um my own experience with psychedelics cannabis being high and being able to like really open myself up to a level that I probably couldn't have reached in a quote-unquote sober state right but like the high risk of that practice it makes me scared just to even talk about on a podcast right but it's like how do you hold that nuance of like yes super healing super positive potentials here but also quite literally what you're talking about some of the most dangerous and risky things here at the same time and so then i just kind of sit in the center like do you talk about it what do you say like how do you navigate these conversations and generally cannabis (sighs) people don't do the wacky shit they will do after four days on meth methamphetamines have a much worse impact on decision making cannabis you're likely to maybe eat too much (laughs) you're likely to get distracted you know like leave the popcorn in the microwave or whatever Mm -hmm. low risk Mm -hmm. methamphetamines however have a really substantially different impact and a much higher risk than cannabis in terms of what people their decision making processes because also you don't tend to stay awake for four days on cannabis it just doesn't have that impact on you whereas methamphetamines especially with repeated use they pretty much just will fuck up your brain Mm -hmm. it's okay if i swear no absolutely this is a oh yeah there's no rules in that way you go for it (laughs) yeah meth has a much different impact also than psychedelics Mm -hmm. psychedelics are higher risk to play with than cannabis as well cannabis and alcohol both can impair judgment alcohol more so than cannabis actually but those two people don't tend to do quite the damage to each other that they do when they're on methamphetamines are seriously bad news to mix with but people have so much fun with it they gravitate towards having sex on meth and i understand why it's really fun for them but it's so dangerous so if you're gonna have sex on meth don't do edge play don't do breath play don't do kidnapping scenes don't do Mm -hmm. blood you know Mm -hmm. anything that could if it gets out of hand that person dies right just don't do it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even like cannabis is considered a psychedelic in some definitions, right? So like, it's interesting. I know, right? Is it? Is it? Uh, so like, it is kind of uh, similar in that way. But I think what the nuanced answer, you know, at least growing up, what I always heard was um, as someone who did a lot of advocacy and volunteering in um, sexual assault, you know, platforms, it was always like, you know, consent when you're on a substance is impossible to give. Like you cannot consent when you're on a substance. You cannot consent when you're on a substance. And it's like, I don't know how realistic that is given that, you know, everyone has that one sip of alcohol or two sips of alcohol and then plays, right? Or that hit of cannabis or like, are you on caffeine? Like, hold on, you know, like what, you know, let's get like real. How about antidepressants? Totally, I've said that before. I'm on an SS, you know, I was on an SSRI. Like. 
Did I give full consent then? That wasn't my sober state of consciousness. I, right. So it's, it's so tricky to like navigate this because the intention, right, is good that you can give your full consent in that. But I feel like it takes a much more like nuanced conversation about like, what's your relationship to this substance? Is this the first time you're smoking cannabis? Yeah, that's probably gonna be really hard to give consent in that time because it's your first time navigating that world. Do you smoke every single day? Well, then maybe that's your norm, you know what I mean? Like there's just such like a nuanced conversation to the relationship between uh, substances and play and intimacy. Absolutely, but worth being careful of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's scary too, when you're doing this on a podcast space, because I'm sure you've seen like a range of people. I don't, you know, you put this out into the ether and you don't know who's listening, right? Like sometimes when I think about like my clients in therapy, listening to that, you know, it's like this, this kind of play isn't for everybody, right? Like you said, like some of the stuff is very varsity level things. And like, you should be someone who has slept every single day before you do that, right? And if you're not that person, this this experience isn't for you, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, and there's no way as a podcast host to get into the nuance of whether this fits for everyone. So then I tend to try and talk about my own experience in this space and be the research subject of one, right? <laughs> and the discussion of, you know, how has this impacted other people? It might have a range totally. of impacts. And if you don't know, err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the the impact on the rest of your life can be so extreme absolutely and i think sometimes you know as like kink and bdsm is getting more popular in the internet which means that there is a large group of people who are practicing these things maybe without community right without the like experience of leaning on other people who have knowledge in this and who can kind of say kind of what you're saying right be careful right like so there's a lot of people who are playing with these things that don't have the community structures to kind of like learn with as it has been in years past. I see that especially in consent. Mm. That is incredibly important because people with community connections realize how difficult it is to establish and sustain consent, partially because there are hundreds of classes on it organizations like the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, they've been having this discussion for 25 years. Mm, What is consent? How do you establish it? How do you sustain it? You know, and it's obviously not an easy conversation that's obvious and clear because it doesn't take 25 years to have that kind of conversation. So the fact that kind of the professionals take 25 years to piece through how exactly to do this consensually is indicative of how difficult that is. But then when people see, for instance, a lot of people get their sex education from pornography. Right. Pornography is notoriously terrible for showing how to establish consent. People in pornography don't negotiate consent. They just jump into things. Yep also notorious for showing very poor safer sex practices. It's a terrible way to learn about sexuality. It's great for getting off. It's great for attention, but as an educational tool for the kind of nuances of how to establish consent, Mm -hmm. how to sustain consent, very difficult. I have been on numerous cases where one person presents evidence and says, look, this is all the things we talked about. 
we established consent and the other person is like, we talked about that, but I, that didn't mean you could do it whenever you wanted to or in this setting or under these circumstances or so both of them are legitimately saying we established consent. The consent did not cover that. And it's it's really I mean, when you're facing jail time, it means a lot whether you actually had consent or not or whether it was that rape and assault or was that BDSM play? You know, it might be both at the same time, unfortunately. One person thinks they're playing consensually and the other person thinks this is assault, you know? And it's, I would say the playing sober is really important, but being excruciatingly clear about consent. Mm -hmm. And if you're gonna do edge play, write that down because if your partner is dead and cannot testify in court that that was consensual you're going down for murder one which is very different than manslaughter manslaughter is when you accidentally kill someone and that is much less it's still not good to kill people but if you're doing it accidentally the law takes that in a very different way than if you planned it out if you have weapons for instance which a lot of people who do kink play will have knives and things like that not that they're planning on stabbing their person the knife play is generally more skin oriented and not as stabbing puncture oriented but the presence of the weapons in the room they think okay so that looks like premeditation you know if you get convicted for murder one that could be a life sentence depending on where you are that could be a death sentence yeah wow so if you're doing edge play write down your consent and get that person to write it down and sign it and it can be helpful to show oh i thought this was okay and you think that's not okay I've really got to give NCSF another shout out here. The National Coalition for Sexual Freedom has these really fantastic guidelines for consent. It's called prior and explicit, explicit prior permission, that it's not body language that indicates interest or laughing. A lot of times people will, it will seem like laughing and fun, but laughing can also be a sign of nervousness, mm -hmm. a sign of not knowing what to say and fear. But if you laugh and it, and your partner thinks, oh, this is awesome. They're really enjoying this. But what your laugh really means is I'm kind of freaked out and I don't know what to say. Right. That's not consent, but it's so easy to mistake for consent. So check out the um, guidelines on the ncsf.org, ncsfreedom.org. They have been working on this for decades and they really have nailed it. Absolutely, yeah, thank you for plugging that. Cause I think it's it's hard when, it's all, this is all scary first off, right? Let's just honor that. Like this is a scary conversation to think about cause, and I think it's needed, right? Because if we only talk about the, the joys and the healing and the expansion of BDSM and kink, right? Like we're missing half of the equation, which is that there's real risk, which is sometimes or partially what's so hot about it, right? Is that there's real risk. Right. I love rock climbing because there's real 
risk in it. And like, I could die when I go out climbing on a rock, right? And that's part of the edge of it. But then, yeah, you need to hold the reality that you got to check that rope. You got to check that equipment. You got to trust that partner that you're going up that mountain with. My God. Make sure you know? your belayer is not on meth. Totally. Yeah. It hasn't slept for four days. Exactly. Right. <laughs> like totally. Yeah, exactly. Right. So all those conversations are so important. So I appreciate you sharing all that. And, and the reality that like outside of even consent conversations, like we're always locked inside our own existential experience, right? Like I am seeing you now in this conversation and having my experience it, you were having the one of me and we can think we're talking about the same thing, saying the same words and we might not at all, right? So then you throw something right. like consent, you know, using our bodies and playing and then edge play on top of that. My God, that gets messy real, real, real fast. And people can have good intent. Right. And it can go terribly wrong. Even it doesn't, you know, intent does matter under the law in the United States. And even with good intent, if the person, if you don't have consent and you kidnap and have sex with that person, that was assault and rape, even if you didn't mean it to be. Mm -hmm. That's where consent conversations become so important, right? Doing our best to have safer sex practices, right? And getting closer to whatever the, the best possible thing that we could do in that space. I'm planning on doing an independent study in the springtime about trauma-informed kink competent care. And I think that trying to combine like my lens of clinical psychology and the trauma responses and yeah, what does consent look like in those spaces? Because, you know, I don't know, it's just so tricky because you can talk about it all on paper and then you have that experience in the play and someone goes into a freeze response and you can't tell, right? Like there's just so much nuance in that. Um, I mean, and, and without a doubt, that's 100% why we don't go on nonverbals, right? And <laughs> I've had my experience with people who have tried to explain that that's how they practice. And I'm like, I got to teach you. And they were like, I don't think I need to be taught. And right. I was just like, mm, okay, this is, you should You're pay me for this. You're playing with fire there, honey, yeah. the nonverbal thing. <laughs> I was like, at that Doesn't point, you should pay me. Doesn't always necessarily mean what you think it does. <laughs> totally, I'll teach you. It's okay. Um, but yeah, I, the second that someone's in that space and you just don't know, you know, where their head's at, they could be having a complete trauma response that you're not even seeing. That also prevents them from safe wording. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, that's scary and dangerous. Um, I, I guess what I would say is you've really got to know your partner yeah which means working up slowly totally have short scenes that aren't that intense and focus on aftercare you know the scene is just about half of it you know but once you once the scene is over and you're talking about the aftercare be very clear. So how did that go? Was there any part of that that was uncomfortable for you in a way that you didn't want it to be? And then slowly build, slowly, carefully, start small, start slow with a lot of communication afterwards. You know, you could even have four or five scenes in a day if you want to, little mini scenes with communication afterwards to be like, okay, then let's try that again. Or, okay, let's try it this other way or do this other thing. A lot of risk is not only the mood alteration, but really inadequate conversations around what are they doing? What's okay? What's not okay? So 
yeah, go slow, lots of communication. And if you are doing something extreme, get it in writing. Yeah. Get your permission in writing. And that will make all the difference if you end up in court. Okay. That's good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Because when I go rock climbing outside, we don't do, you know, the most radical, high stakes, hardest routes with someone I've never climbed before. Right. Like there's such a practice of, Hey, maybe we meet in the gym. Maybe we start with that slow thing, you know, and then we, we go outside and we try a really, really easy route that we know we'll, you know, get rather than going to that huge, you know, high risk. If the trad gear falls out, someone could fall to the ground kind of stuff you know like I, th I think there's just so many parallels in types of edge and risk play in different areas of our lives that like clearly makes sense right of like yeah you start slow and you communicate and you have you know written conversations about what you're going to engage in in that space right and it's it's like the same thing can be applied here of of taking it slow and and also I think there's so much space to hold for how hot that is like my god I love being teased my god like let's take it so slow that I have to beg you for more like where's right. the joy of that you know right <laughs> Yes. And I, I think that actually, that's such a good point that it can extend mm -hmm. the play in a really delicious way. Yeah, absolutely. The slowness. And if you need to take a break and masturbate or something, that's fine. You know, like, so you can go back and focus on what you're doing. I mean, the top, usually the bottom's hands are usually tied or, you know, whatever, unable to masturbate themselves, but the top could totally do that for them, you know, and you know, extend things out with slowness, I think mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a good point that it's hot too. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, you've seen probably maybe the best and the worst of all of this sort of stuff, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I've, I go to a lot of conventions and things to, for instance, listen to the people who do a lot of breath play, like how do they play safely? Breath play is a really tricky one. You have to be super careful with it in part because like, even if you're not pressing directly on the windpipe and you're pressing on the veins on the side of the neck, which is, I mean, it's, they call it breath play, but it's more circulation play. Like you're prohibiting circulation from the brain. Sometimes you can let go of those veins and they, if you have collapsed it, it will not bounce right back depending on the person's elasticity of their veins. You can also induce seizures, even in someone who's never had seizures before. Mm. Making people go unconscious can be very dangerous. And people just do breath play like willy-nilly. It's probably the highest risk that I see in court. I've worked on three different murder by breath play cases. And I really don't think in any of them it was intentional murder. I think in all three of them, Oof. it was an accident. And I mean, it changed those people's lives Completely. permanently. One of them was on death row. I was on his case where they are like, he received inadequate representation the first time. Uh -huh. So they're trying him again. And he was destined for the electric chair. And wow. they decided it was manslaughter instead wow it made a huge difference but still it's even spending time in prison for manslaughter sure. is not fun you know yeah yeah and 
I don't think I've really had enough space to talk about what breath play is. I mean, I'm thinking about, yeah, blood chokes on the side, choking, other sorts of things. Do you think you could flesh that out a little bit for the listener? I, n- I never know who's listening. Sure. I imagine it's always a mix of like half like really kinky people and other people who are like, what the hell is this? What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so people do breath play because oxygen deprivation combined with orgasm is really God. intense. Yeah. People love that sensation. Mm-hmm. So the oxygen deprivation, even, you know what, little kids will do oxygen deprivation too. Like they'll, I mean, a lot of people play with oxygen deprivation and don't necessarily think of it as a sexual thing. Like it provides this kind of ringing sensation. Mm-hmm. The Wilm Hof um, breathing, all this sort of yeah, yoga breath, that, lots of things. Totally. That is really appealing for a lot of people, just as mammals. The brain is like, ooh, that feels ooh, sparkly. So the way to do breath play safely, again, these, these guidelines are coming from the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom because they have looked at this quite a bit because there's been so many terrible accidents. Mm, yeah. So what what the kind of pros recommend the safest way to do breath play is to cover the mouth and nose with a hand mm. at the same time like and then people can just let go because if you have something like a ligature around someone's neck you can't necessarily get it off quick enough if they're literally dying and it's a belt or something that's stuck Sometimes people, you know, and you can't get a knife in there to cut it. You might be desperately trying to get it off. Whereas if it's your hand, you can just let go. Mm. Um, Sometimes people will do like plastic bags and things over people's heads. Again, anything you have to remove to allow blood flow could create an emergency situation. Also, compression on the neck is really popular. A lot of people do it that way, but it's dangerous. Partially because of what I already said about the blood vessels don't always, depending on their elasticity, they may like pop right open and blood there it goes. Or if they're collapsed, it might take medical intervention to get them to open up again. And you probably don't have what you need there in your basement for the correct medical intervention. Some people will do it by pressing on the front of the neck, and that is really dangerous. You can damage someone's trachea. You can damage their vocal cords. There's little teeny, like, delicate structures in there that if you break them, bad things happen. So the front of the neck is actually pretty delicate, which is one of the reasons in it's a killer move in martial arts if you like hit somebody right in the throat they're down you know and they're like clutching their neck and they're writhing around on the ground <laughs> you know it's like a coup de gras in martial arts also weirdly because breath play appears to be so common in pornography and so common in just kind of sex play in general a lot of people feel like oh that's just part of sex like it doesn't have to be negotiated well that's really scary yes it is if you're on the receiving end of non-negotiated breath play something that if you had talked about it might have been super hot 
But if your partner just grabs you and starts choking you during sex without talking about it beforehand, people in pornography love that. People in real life, they get scared that you are trying to kill them. You know, like really, really scary, especially if there's a gender power difference. It can be incredibly terrifying. And you were talking about the freeze response. Mm -hmm. If the person who the law will label the perpetrator who isn't intending to perpetrate, they're like, this is fun. This is hot. They're not trying to be a perpetrator. But suddenly they've gone from sex partners to perpetrator and victim like that there's so much room for high risk high damage outcomes in breath play that that should remain and i'm not saying no one should ever do breath play i'm saying do it very carefully with a lot of discussion yeah beforehand don't just spring it on your partner The other thing is sometimes people will mistake previous consent Mm, as permanent or ongoing consent. And just because you did something one time with someone doesn't mean that person has blanket ability to do that to you for the rest of their lives. You you have to renegotiate Mm -hmm. ongoing consent. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to change your mind. Even if you're the submissive, you can say, okay, I, I agreed to this. And now that we've done some of that, I've changed my mind. I don't want to do that anymore. Right. And that's okay. And if a dominant says, no, you agreed to it, then that's a bad dom. you got to get away from that dom. Totally. Any dom that will not allow renegotiation mm-hmm. is dangerous. And you don't, even as, as a new sub, often people are like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't disappoint my dom. I can't like do the wrong thing. So if the dom says I can't renegotiate, that must mean I can't. And that's bullshit. You can always renegotiate. And if your dom doesn't let you, then that is a red flag, a huge red flag. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm curious for you and for my own personal experience, like how do you kind of navigate what the edge is of safety in these experiences? You know, that's a problem because a lot of people don't know. And even in the medical field, they don't necessarily know what the impact is of repeated hypoxia. That's, that's what it's called when your brain isn't getting enough oxygen is hypoxia. They don't know necessarily what the impact of repeated hypoxia is or long-term they do know what the impact of long-term hypoxia can be either a traumatic brain injury or death i mean you and you don't want to do either one of those things to your partner so i'm not sure even where to get that information like i don't know if anybody knows it one of the things they've been doing research on kind of comparing there's this extreme sport called free diving where people set world records for going the deepest and staying under the longest, but it's, it's almost like scuba diving with no scuba gear. And interestingly enough, it has some of the same impacts, but much less judgment. Yes. Thank you. It's like, it's okay to do this extreme. Oh man. As long as it's in the name of sports. But if you're doing this extreme thing, 
in the name of orgasm, oh, then you must, there must be something wrong with you. You're weird and we're not, we're just going to put you in jail. Whereas it's okay if it's a sport. Absolutely. So the researchers are comparing Mm. hypoxic injuries in brains from freedivers who die sometimes. Freedivers have drowned. You know, freedivers have bubbled to the surface and had lasting brain injury from oxygen deprivation and that seems somehow just more more comfortable for people to accept than doing it in the name of sex and i'm no judgment for me on either of them but no one is ever prosecuted for the death of a freediver they're assumed to be doing it consensually to themselves And they're never prosecuted for self-assault the way in some places with BDSM consent to assault is not a legally admissible way to get around it. In some places you cannot, you cannot consent to your own assault. And they, so they define any kind of impact play or restraint, which are super common in BDSM. Impact play and restraint are like the bread and butter of kinky sex. You know, they will define that as definitionally non-consensual and that you can't consent to it. So whoever is doing it is completing assault. So Mm. I don't want to make it sound everyone is prosecuted all over the place all the time for kinky sex you know it's i'm i'm talking about a very select portion because you you're not going to end up on my caseload if you're having unproblematic kinky sex right because the cops aren't getting involved no one's dead right no one is being prosecuted for anything and that is the vast majority of kinky sex People do it in private. They may not even think of it as kinky. It just might be fun games they play with each other. And maybe they're not thinking, this is BDSM. But all of these risks we're talking about, they come with these higher risk activities. And especially doing high risk activities badly. Is are, Those are the people I see in my caseload. Um, so listeners out there, I don't want you to think kinky sex always has these horrible outcomes because right. the vast majority of kinky sex, the outcome is fun and play and catharsis and release and kind of like a vacation from mundane life. I mean, how often do you get to be the Marquis de Sade? Maybe all the time, if you're lucky, I don't know, but I got to Marquis de Sade probably has a more interesting life than your average barista you know so if you're like hey I need a vacation from fucking Starbucks I'm working all the time what a fun little break you get to suddenly be you know someone different absolutely absolutely and that surrender that you can have in those spaces is just so oof it's so juicy and it Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important conversation because at least on this podcast, I'm always talking about the ideas of informed consent. I came from a research background, you know, I'd be consenting people to things and that kind of always stuck with me, right? And so like, 
if the conversations we're having in the space are only about the the goods and the potential healing that can happen through this sort of work like we're not giving people the full informed consent which is that this is inherently risky this is inherently dangerous and again the sexiness of that but also the need to talk about the risks of that are really important and i think where do I learn this? I can't just like Google, like how much is too much, right? Or when do I cross that line? And where's the research on it? And I think when I read things like the body keeps the score and I start to ask bigger questions about like, even though I'm enjoying this pain, is it potentially inflicting harm on my body in long-term ways, right? So then I, and I start to think about, okay, you know, like someone like someone, a football player, right? you love pain, you go into that, you take that tackle, that intense, you know, and you enjoy that process and the sport and the hype that comes with all of that. But do you still have long-term body consequences? And are and am I subjecting myself to long-term body consequences by doing this sort of play? And a lot of people, like doms, will get repeated stress injuries from using the same hand to whip or flog or something. Like they'll get wrist stress injuries not everything lands you in court or prison or something sometimes you get repeated stress injuries also from suspension it's important to know i don't see this at all in my caseload but i i read a lot of research and some research recently came out about how suspension when it's not done right can put stress on nerves and give you neuralgia or neuropathy. There's some kind of ongoing, you can, within 10 minutes, you can do permanent damage to nerve bundles if you're suspending someone wrong. And nerves are everywhere throughout the human body. So trying to avoid impacting the nerves when you're suspending someone is super difficult. So doing suspension, at least what this article I read, was saying, be really aware of tingling. That is the first sign, tingling. And if you're experiencing tingling in any of your extremities or localized tingling where a rope is touching, come back down and reorient the rigging. Yeah. You know, so... And it's, and it's even more nuanced than that, right? Because like as someone who's been a bottom and has gone through that like training of learning to tell the difference between like a circulation cutoff versus a nerve cutoff, it feels even different because, and I mean, I guess maybe the biggest lesson of this conversation and continued conversation is that community is important and that like I would never recommend just picking up a rope and trying the shit in your own home. You know what I mean? Like you need to learn from someone. You don't go rock climbing and pick up a rope and just climb a mountain. You learn from someone who knows what's the risk and the dangers, right? But like, yeah, when I was in the class of bottoming, like I, I, I've had experiences where I've lost um, like the ability to move my fingers and my um, index finger and my pinky, right? So, and that's kind of how you could tell the difference between like a full circulation cutoff or maybe you get that tingling in the whole hand because it's a blood cutoff versus like when you get that sensation in the fingers and you can't move the fingers, we're starting to go into nerves, right? And like that becomes right. such a crucial piece as the bottom of being aware because it's not just always the top doing these skills like the like the top has no idea what's going on in my fingers you know what I mean so it was very much so on me to be able to like tune in and be like 
okay, like that's that piece. We need to come down now, right? Scissors are always in the space. We can cut me out right at any point, right? So it was such a process too of learning how to bottom. And I think even coming back to our beginning point of the conversation, like that was done through small little baby steps. I was not suspended the first time I tried anything with rope, right? Like there was months and weeks and hours of training with someone who knew how to do this that was in the room with us. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, yeah, I get scared. How Very careful. Yeah, might be doing this like just on their own. And then it's just, yeah, high risk, high reward stuff here. And I think one of the things that keeps people from getting the community involvement that you keep bringing up, which I agree is crucial, yeah these kinky motherfuckers they have learned over a long time (laughs) how to make it fun and safe and they have put a lot of effort into doing it in a way that with positive outcomes and that's what you want from your kinky sex is a positive outcome long-term positive outcome and that is available but there's so much shame around even having kinky desires that I think a lot of people will, you know, watch pornography and get ideas or read books or watch movies or whatever. But the idea of like searching out community and identifying yourself as someone who might be interested in the kind of skills and wisdom that community has to provide means facing the shame of having kinky desires and i personally think kink is really widespread a lot of people well research indicates up to 70 percent of people have kinky fantasies and i gotta think that that is an under representation because it's one of the things a lot of people won't admit to So I think the sex negativity and the shame around kinky sex and having kinky desires and like wanting to get smacked during sex or wanting to spank someone or Mm -hmm. something, you know, we hear just from children on up, like, that's weird. That's gross. People should not want to do that. And if you like that, there's something wrong with you. And that really sinks in and unfortunately has the impact of people then won't pursue information. They won't Mm -hmm. pursue knowledge or wisdom. I've had people opposing counsel in court say there is no research on BDSM. Like you can't have a court expert on BDSM because there's nothing to be an expert in. And I'm like, well, you clearly haven't been reading. (laughs) Like there are decades of research on BDSM. You know, we've been talking about this, not me, because I wasn't around yet. But, you know, people have been talking about this since the 1960s and it was happening way before that. They just weren't necessarily publishing much research outside of, I mean, the sexologists in the 1880s were looking at, PDSM, sadism and masochism, those terms come from, I think it's Kraft Ebbing in like 1886, looking at unconventional sexual practices. So this is not new. Right. But the the shame around it is also not new, but it's really potent in terms of keeping people from getting education and getting the resources they need to have 
fun and fulfilling and safe kinky sex lives with positive long-term outcomes. And that is absolutely possible, but not if you if the shame is so intense, you can't talk about it. Yeah. Then you also can't talk to your partner. And what if what you need to say to your partner is, I want you to do these things to me, but I want you to do them safely. And you can't do that. Sometimes you end up getting them in other ways that are not helpful. They are not positive. You know, you can get that kind of stimulation in other ways that is not negotiated and dangerous. Yes, 100%. Looking at all of those situations with power and people who use that, you know, to like wield that to have people to do coercion. I mean, like, what if in another Absolutely. world we were able to let go of that shame and then have a space where we could inherently play with that in a safe container? My God, I think it's just so clear to us probably sitting in that how that is a way to like channel that experience in a healthy and safe way, but to the outside world because of all of that shame and stuff, it's not talked about, right? And and man, if I, you know, thinking about it, like from my lens as a therapist, like the best thing for to undo the shame is to find community. I know that leap into it is is difficult and so hard, but once you get into there and then you meet the people in there and we still deal with the imposter syndrome of damn, can I identify with this label? Um, <laughs> once you get into there, then you're like, oh, everyone's talking about this. Oh, everybody does this. Oh, like the ability for me to come onto this podcast and talk about what I'm exploring in my own personal life and yada, yada, it would have been impossible were it not for the 100 whatever guests that have come before who have been like, oh, I do this. Oh, I do this. And my community looks at me when I say this and they're like, yeah, that's hot and sexy. If I went out and said that to people and they shamed me, I would be so silent. That's like everything that psychology says, right? It's like my voice will shift depending on who I'm speaking to and who I'm accepted with. Otherwise we come in and we go quiet. So it's like, Oh, yeah, if you can do that extra step of like hopping over the difficulty and the discomfort to get into community, it can be transformative in so many different ways. And like, I was loving what you're talking about, like the depth of kink for everybody or the depth of I asked someone once like a juicy question of like, oh, is everyone kind of kinky? And they push back and they're like, no. And I was like, okay, I think this is a fair point, because like when we think about like what it means to be kinky in terms of like the identity right and the practice and the 20 plus years of training in that sort of space and and making this a part of your life and your craft and your artistry and your skill like etc like that's a very specific thing compared to maybe like gently tying someone in in your bedroom or wherever occasionally right like in honoring that nuance however however man does everyone like to play with power maybe i can go there and claim that right and the amount of like stories i see of like i grew up you know very heterosexual i had no idea i was queer like i was always attracted to this idea of this like man who comes in and is so strong and controls and moves me and does all that. that's called a dom you know what i mean like that's not a full human <laughs> that's a dom you know what i mean it's like so many people are attracted to that narrative and that power and that experience and i'm like yeah you like to play with power you like to play with power Absolutely. And the other thing is a lot of people have fantasies mm. that they don't necessarily want to actually do in real life. Sure. And that's okay. That is completely okay. 
to have a very active fantasy life and you don't have to ever do any of those things Mm -hmm. in real life. You know, it's the other thing is you don't have to feel guilty about your fantasies. If you're fantasizing about something and you're like, oh my God, I would never want to tell anyone that fantasy. That's okay. Keep it, you know, it's you have permission to play with your own brain is totally fine. So I think releasing some of the shame and the concern around other people's judgment is crucial for self-acceptance and social Mm -hmm. acceptance on the wider social scale. I think we have a lot of people judging themselves and then they turn that judgment outward. Yeah, you know, and try to make laws about other people and try to keep other people from doing things. You know, I'm really seeing it with this weird obsession the right wing has about transgender people grooming children for molestation. When if you look at the statistics about who is doing the molesting, it is white, heterosexual, cisgender, religious men pastors it is not the drag queens so it's like they are thinking i want to do this to children those people must want to do this to children i'm gonna get them and like focusing it in a place where i mean and i have been looking i have looked hard and there are literally zero cases of drag queens molesting children zero Whereas there are hundreds, I mean, the number of, of heterosexual men that molest children who are religious figures. Yeah. I mean, it turns my stomach hundreds. If you look in at least what the news is reporting and you know, if there were drag queens doing it, the news would be all over that because it would be this confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think those people's own shame Mm-hmm. makes them predators and it makes them turn it against other people whereas if they could just admit it the drag queens aren't the problem it's the pastors who want back to what you were saying about playing with power that's a very powerful position they're playing unethically yeah. with power by raping children but they're pretending it's someone else doing it they're focusing on other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe we can name that what like the pow- the danger of repression, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, wow. And so then hence, the ethical need for people like us to have this conversation about what does it look like to bring that into a consensual, negotiated, safer space. So that way we don't have these experiences where these parts of ourselves that we all have and enjoy come out in that way. We need to find containers and do it in a way that has the level of informed consent about it to channel that. And then dare I say there's pleasure and healing and ecstasy in that space when we do do that with the informed nature of all the risks that are possible in this high reward, high risk play. And let me just say, I know I've been kind of talking about the downside and there's all sorts of upsides to BDSM, but it leads, at least for me, to age play like there's a huge difference between someone pretending to be eight years old or 12 years old and engaging sexually with someone 
versus an actual eight-year-old or a 12-year-old. And I see a lot of confusion about that. Like if you want to do age play, does that mean you're a pedophile? And no, it does not. In fact, a lot of the people who want to play with someone with, you know, a 35-year-old person who's pretending to be eight, you will get a very different reaction from the 35-year-old pretending to be eight than you would from an actual eight-year-old. And what they want is the reaction from the 35-year-old who's pretending to be eight or 12 or whatever, you know. Back again to the religious figures, they are actually going after the eight-year-olds and the 12-year-olds, you know, and that's under no circumstances can children give consent, even if they're, and you can't, you out there, you listeners can't see me making the air quotes, even if the children are in quote, flirting, it is the adult's job. If a kid comes to sit on your lap, that does not mean the sexual thing that you think it means to them. It means they're looking for comfort and security. And just because you get aroused by it doesn't mean they're trying to do that. So don't blame it on the kids flirting Mm. with you, adult human. Take responsibility for your actions and do not molest children. There's my little soapbox there for a minute because that has huge negative impacts for their whole lives I know. their entire life and the chances that then they will become predators later in life increase if they are molested as children that leads to higher molestation rates later in life so just cut the whole cycle don't mess with the kids right and if you have had that there's also i i guess i'm i'm feeling this reaction like as a therapist who has worked with people in that space too, like holding the space that like, it's not inevitable that if that has happened to you, right. That, that, that you will do that again. Right. Like there's so Absolutely. much, yeah, there's so much healing that you can do to be able to like work through that. Cause I think that's one of the hard things as being like a therapist is just seeing the wide amount of times that has happened. Like I, I guess, you know, you, you hear about it and you think it happens in these rare cases and then you get into the therapy room and you hear it again and again and you're like, wow, this is way more widespread than you think. And so like, there's just so much space though to like, yeah, break that generational trauma and to take a different direction and to heal from that. I, I believe it's completely possible to never like close the, you know, I don't know how to say that like the trauma is always there the experience is always there but to be able to go through it and to heal through it and to step into a space of being able to sexually thrive like that's the passion work that i'm so you know happy to be in the space to do with people because of how widespread it is right it's wild it's wild bdsm can be a great healing tool for healing past things that happen And if you can recreate them, but have control over them in a different way, that can be really healing for a lot of people. But like rape play, for instance, that is the kind of edge play that you really need to be well-rested and really need to have discussed incredibly thoroughly. Don't just do a rape scene with somebody you just met and you haven't slept in three days and you're both high on meth. That's recipe for disaster. Like, rape play is right up there with breath play in terms of the kind of edge play you need to be really careful 
with because it can be really healing on one edge or it can be re-traumatizing yes if you do it badly a hundred percent a hundred percent and that's where it's all about that informed consent right the informed consent to these beautiful risky and inherently dangerous and healing all at the same time like the yes and right like we can't get into this black and white thinking about these things which is frequently what society thinks right bdsm pathology something's wrong rah, 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 rah. it's like man let's just open this up to have a way more nuanced conversation about all the different shades that occur in this and all the different ways that this can go so i'm very thankful that you are someone in the same space that has that same like nuanced answer to the beauty and to the inherent risk of play, right? Absolutely. It's a very rich practice that can fuck you up. Yeah. And also I want to add to the listener who's listening and like, like you had mentioned earlier is having those thoughts and fantasies about kink, but is not living them out or in like actually practicing them. Like you can still claim that identity of kinky, right? Like, I think a lot of people would be like, it's kind of like, you know, queerness, right? You have those queer longings and people would be like, oh, can I identify as queer if I've never kissed someone of a different gender, right? And it's like, yep. Yes. A hundred percent. You're kinky. Welcome to the club, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to hold a little bit of space as we come towards the end of our time in case there was something on your heart maybe we didn't talk about. Otherwise, I have a closing question I can ask all my guests. You know what I would would love to talk about because it's just so much more fun and positive and empowering. Now, I mean, BDSM can be absolutely fun and positive and empowering, but we've talked a lot about kind of the the downsides of BDSM (laughs) and just kind of on a more happy note. I've been working on this thing that I'm really excited about with my colleagues. It's the Bonding Project, and Mm. you can find it at bondingproject.com. It is a relationship test that helps people consider if they want to bond one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, or solo. And it's designed to help people. It's not as much of like a psychological diagnostic tool that tells you this is what you are. It's much more of like a conversational tool first to have with yourself, thinking about, well, what what do I really want? And then to have with partners. Right now we are beta testing the second round. We had one come out 2020. Fantastic results. People really liked it. But one of the big things we heard back in feedback was we were trying to measure too much with just one test. We were looking at like sex and romance and kind of love all glumped together. And it just didn't work for some people who separate them. For some people, they're like, of course, all that's that's one thing. Other people were like, no, this is 12 different things. Yeah. And you can't really have them, you can't pretend that they're one thing because it doesn't work. My relationship so now, anarchist. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So we've disaggregated it. And yeah. now we've got one quiz on money, another cohabitation, one on sex one on romance and then we're working on family we're working on time you know how do you want to spend these various resources do you want to live with non-romantic 
partners, but share money with romantic partners? You know, some people probably not, but mm -hmm. I just made that part up and that seems kind of strange, that, that combination. Once, once we're done pilot testing it, we will put the official versions back up again and people can start taking it. If you're interested in pilot testing it, I'm happy to share the yeah. link and people yes. can take it and see what they think. Absolutely. Um, love some feedback just to see it, you know, if we're hitting the mark mm -hmm. with this. What we're working on right now is developing a scoring mechanism, which is a challenge that has been really interesting. And eventually what we'll have is a dashboard where people can not only take the tests over time to see how they change over time in terms of the, how they want to manage their resources totally. and their relationships, but also share their results with other people and do a comparison. So let's say there's a polycule with five people in it. Yeah. And, you know, three of the five are very clearly communalists when it comes to space and money. They want to just combine everything but two of the five are like, I want my own space and I want my own money. You know, seeing that coming and identifying that issue before they're trying to buy a house mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, so they can talk about it and decide, okay, if we're going to look for a house, we've got to get one with a granny unit because this person needs separate space or this person is not going to buy the house with us and we're going to get the house. And that person is going to have their own apartment and they're going to come see us and have dinner or something. So we've got big, exciting plans for it. And here we are in, you know, about to release the second round of tests once we're done pilot testing and we've got the scoring mechanisms so cool. worked out so the computer can just do it so people can get their results right away. So exciting. We don't have that yet, but... We used to have that, but we really had underestimated the amount of interest we would get. And we had like the back of the house, the computer. I don't understand how it worked. It didn't work very well. If it had like three to four people in an hour, it could totally manage. But when we were having 300 people take it in an hour, sure. the system, the computer system couldn't handle it and would break down. So people were getting really frustrated. They weren't getting their results quickly enough. So we need to figure out, well, for one thing, it's a free test. We're not making any money on it. It's costing us money. It costs us about $500 a month to have the website and everything running. So people aren't spending money. So we were like, give us a break. We're trying the best we can with no money, trying to, you know, come up with this sure. thing that's useful for you. So it's weird how some people will get really kind of entitled and angry if they don't get their results in like 10 minutes. They're so mad. They're so, like, you guys, we're giving this to you for free. We're doing oh. like this shoestring thing. We're glad you're interested. Totally. But would you give us a minute? You know, so. Totally. We can have a whole conversation on entitlement. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, but that sounds so neat. It kind of reminds me of like the like almost like taking a next step of like 
when you're stepping off the relationship escalator and you're starting to look at that relationship smorgasbord and the way that you want to create your life, like here's, you know, a sort of tool to be able to think about that in a deeper way, which is so neat and so powerful. And at least for for me and like what I feel in the, I mean, the internet and all of these spaces, the growing um, listeners that are growing on this podcast at a radical rate, I think that there's more people who are starting to ask these questions and realize that, you know, like we live our lives, we live off of narratives, archetypes, stories, and for at least actually for a very recent time, let's be honest, this is not how we always constructed relationships for, you know, centuries before, but for our recent, right, exactly, right, and this is not what we've always done before, but recently within our, you know, decades of whatever time, it's the, you know, two people, house, kids, yada, yada, that is the pathway to a success. It kind of reminds me of when, you know, you first step into college, you're like, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer, because that's, the pathway to success. There's five options I get here. Or a doctor. Exactly. Doctor, lawyer, this, right? And it's like, people are starting to step in. Exactly, right? And then you're like, but shit, I can't do math. I know. I guess doctor and engineer are out. Yeah, exactly. What's left? Exactly. And I think- Lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think people are getting into this space where they're kind of realizing like, oh, whoa, I have all this freedom to create the life that I want, which reminds me of a post-it note I have up there about from Kierkegaard, which is anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, right? Like with that, like when you crack that open and you tell someone like, hey, you get to construct your whole life, all the relationships and all the different ways that you want, that can be like anxiety provoking. That's like walking down the Walmart where there's like millions of options and you're like, whoa, you know what I mean? Like so many pasta sauces, who knew? Yeah, totally, exactly, right? And then it's like, it's much easier to fall into this like one pasta sauce and this is how you make the pasta. And this is how you right. have happy, healthy pasta. But man, the amount of people that have made that dish, gotten there, are taking those first bites and are saying, I don't like this, something's off. Woo, come so talk to us. Come talk to yeah. us. <laughs> Such a cool tool. I'm sure that's going to like really like get people thinking of like what's a different way to connect and build these lives. Hopefully t- like down some of that anxiety by giving a tool where you could kind of get concrete examples of what that looks like. And compare your results with your partner. Yeah. Partners. Yeah. Yeah. We really hope. We're really excited about it. And the the amount and degree of response we've had on just like no budget, no advertising, nothing, you know, has really been overwhelming. People are hungry for this. It's exciting. Um, And if we could, if we had any money, we could get a much better computer system. That's what we need is a better back of house because we have all the ideas. The ideas are no problem. It's the functional computer talking to itself, I guess. I don't even know what it would do to to do the results, but we need someone to write that. And for that, it takes money. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. So hopefully those resources. Figuring that out. Yeah. Hopefully those resources will come to you, you know, like, like, cause like you said, like people are hungry. The energy is there, you know, it, it's, it's coming. <laughs> yes. Well, I will ask you then the closing question I ask all of my guests on the podcast, which is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? 
I guess feeling like you don't know what you're doing. Mm. You know, I think a lot of people, I certainly as a child thought the adults around me like had a plan. I had no idea how completely lost everyone was. And, you know, I'm in middle age now and I still have no clue (laughs) what I'm doing. I have children in their 20s, you know, and they, I don't know if they think I have a clue. I've been pretty clear with that. I never, I've had very little pretense with them over their lives. So I think they're abundantly aware of I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to, you know, like meet their needs and be a good mom, but I don't know what's going on. So I think maybe this idea that everybody's like on a track or has a plan or Mm. has this kind of perfect sense of what to do next or how to manage things, I think is not real. I think a lot of us are very confused and doing the very best we can. And sometimes we screw it up and sometimes we find things that we didn't expect and go off on a route that we really did not see coming. But to kind of give yourself a break and the people around you a break Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're all trying to like sit in that space of honoring that people are doing their best even when their best is harmful like I I like to think that people are trying to do their best maybe that's the therapy lens side right coming into this um that doesn't mean you let all those people get close to you let's be very clear but seeing it through that lens at least gives like some more empathy for the fact that yeah we are all unpacking growing learning each day and trying to figure that out and I don't know at least for me these days like I even see that with a sense of joy like I'm like I'm sitting in this space where like I have been following my heart with various different things, which is, you know, and I, and I'm fucking loud about how I feel about things. And that gets me in trouble, you know, like <laughs> a good feminist should <laughs> make it trouble. I know. Right. I know. Um, and like following that has led me down such paths that I would have, I could have never in a million years thought that I would be in. Do you know what I mean? Like there was no, no part of me that could have dreamed that. Wow. Like what expansion is possible? Like there is like, if that's where I'm at now and I continue to follow that and explore that, like there is going to be some like big mysterious place that I'm going to end up at that I have no idea, but like how beautiful it's going to be once I get there and like kind of like getting into the mystery of, of the future and what's going to unravel. It's juicy juicy and it can be scary too to not know what you're doing can be anxiety provoking you and Kierkegaard nailed it (laughs) and there we come back again to the juiciness and fear and the how close you know fear and joy are really right there aren't they Well, it was such a pleasure to chat with you where can people find the bonding project all of your sort of stuff plug away um, so you can find the bonding project at bondingproject.com. You can find my work at elizabethchef.com. And that's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F.com. You can also find my blogs on Psychology Today at the title of my first book, which I have forgotten in the <laughs> The Polyamorous Next Door. What what yeah. was that book? Yeah. The Polyamorous Next Door is the name of my blog, 
on psychology today. Great, 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 great. I'll have all of that linked below so people can just go directly into the show notes and find Fantastic. all of your stuff. Yeah, thank you for coming onto the podcast today and sharing your experience. Thanks for hosting me. It was an interesting conversation. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.